On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Don't tell me how to make a record. I was in Nirvana. (laughs) What? I was in the greatest rock and roll band of the 90s. We changed the course of rock music. Welcome to No Filler, the music podcast dedicated to sharing the often overlooked hidden gems that fill the space between the singles on our favorite records. In each episode, we'll dive into a little history of the artist and the album of choice, with snippets from interviews and concerts, as well as music from the album itself. On this week's episode, we're going to dive into Foo Fighters' third studio album, There Is Nothing Left to Lose. My name is Quentin, and with me is my brother Travis. How you doing, bro? Doing fantastic. Here, a rainy day in Plano, Texas. Plano, gross. That's where I live. So we've got some splaining to do, huh? Yeah. So here's the thing about this episode. So uh, we tried to do our very first guest. Have our very first guest. I'm not going to reveal who the guest is yet. You know. Because it's just so exciting and thrilling. Who it oh, is. man, they're probably on the edge of their seats. Right. But uh, <laughs> this person actually came over to my house, and uh, we actually managed to get Dave Grohl to come to my house. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's crazy. I could not believe it. No, um, let's just say we didn't get the recording stuff set up correctly. Yeah, um, so when I listened so listen back to it, 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 he sounded all glitchy and robotic. It was weird. Right. Um, so then we had him hop over and share a mic with Travis. And um, yeah, so we salvaged what we could from uh, from our conversation with him. Um, yes. But we are here re-recording the intro uh, because it just wasn't usable. Correct. So, so yeah. yeah. Again, <laughs> we're, we're new to this, friends. We just said, so yeah, in unison. Like really, like like as as any good twins should do, awesome. say things in unison. All right, so we are going to go through our what you heard's uh, still just you and I, and then we. Will... Oh, we're still not going to tell them who who our guest is. Yeah, no, we'll do that later. All right. Anticipation. All right. Um. So, Q, you want to go first? Yeah, I'll start. All right. What you heard this week, brother? Well. You may or may not know. I've been on a, a psychedelic rock kick for for a little bit now, and um, this band is called Wand. And I've heard of them. Yeah, they're different. Um, they've they've definitely got the psychedelic rock vibes, but on top of that, 
they're like equal parts 90s grunge some you know sometimes with with their guitar lines and like guitar riffs and, and the, the drumming styles um and metal as well but the singer his name's Corey hansen uh he's he's been he he formed the band um they actually haven't even been around for that long but he you know he keeps the the psychedelic rock roots grounded with his vocals and the way the way he sings um the rest of it's really really heavy and that's what i like about it and for my uh what you heard song um rather than play the song as you hear it on the album uh there is a kexp performance that they did back in july of 2016 that is phenomenal uh we'll embed the video on our show notes so you can watch it um there is a song that that is on their um album that came out in let's see i don't even know when it came out (laughs) i think it came out in 2015 so this song was on their album 1000 days that came out in uh, September of 2015. And uh, the reason I wanted to share this clip from KEXP, uh, since then they've got a couple new members in the band. So they've got Sophia Araguin, backing vocals and synth, and Robert Cody, rhythm guitar. They've been in the band since 2016. Uh, but again, this album came out in 2015, so they're not featured on this album. Um, but this performance is really, really awesome. Travis, I highly recommend you watch it, dude. It's really fucking good. So this track is called Lower Order, and it appears on their 2015 album, 1000 Days.
Yeah, there's a lot going on in that song, man. My favorite part is towards the end there, dude, when it changes up. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, almost... I love it, man. Yeah, well, like, you know, the beginning of that clip, it almost sounds like something you'd hear in a Tim Burton film or something. I don't know why, but I got that vibe of, like, uh, you could hear, like, uh, you know, Lock, Shock, and Barrel or something like that from, from uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. You know, those those three oh, yeah. little henchmen? Yeah, yeah. They were, they were to, you know, crawl around in the, in the bathtub or whatever. Right, right. Like, you could, I could just hear that, you know? Yeah. This is how Corey Hansen sings. Um, and and it, any any Wand song that you listen to, doesn't matter how, how far back it goes, That's this is the vibes that they... That, that they're going for. So this is all Corey Hansen. But this is that's what I like so much about this performance on KEXP because obviously she brings to the table, you know, just really, uh, you know, complimentary vocals for him. Um, the first album of theirs that I listened to, um, and this is the only full album of theirs that's on Spotify. Uh, it's called Gollum, which came out yeah. in 2015. So the same year as A Thousand Days. I've listened to a couple of tracks from from that album, Floating Head. Floating Head is really good. Yeah, it's got those vibes, dude. Kind of, yeah. kind of creepy. Um, yeah, it's a it's a here, good uh, good vibe. Yeah, but but like you know, it transitions into some really heavy like grunge punk stuff in the middle. That's that's what I like so much about these guys. And then it turns into almost like a like a, uh, as far as the the guitar sound, something like uh, Interpol or the Editors or something like that or. Yeah. Or, um, or Block Party or something like that, you know, from that era of like guitar um, rock, you know? Yeah. So it's cool. It's a good, it's a good, it's a good mashup of a bunch of different rock sounds, you know? So that's cool. Yep. That's, that's what I like about, uh, so much about them. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just, there's just so much going on. So it just satisfies so much of like what, like right now, what I'm really looking for. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely check out the, that performance, dude, on KAXP. It's, Seriously, it's it's really fun to watch. Okay. Maybe I will. So that is my what you heard. So I'm going to ask you, brother. What have you heard? So I was checking out this documentary a couple weeks back that um, explored the desert rock scene from Palm Desert mm-hmm. in, uh, in L.A., California area. Um and this band kept popping up in, in the interviews, uh, this group called Yawning Man. They were kind of known for starting this this trend of just taking your gear, going out and setting up in the desert. And, um, you know, they would get these gasoline-powered generators uh, to plug their amps into, to, you know, to power their amps and whatnot, and just have these shows in the desert. Uh, that started uh, to be referred to as generator parties. And um, that's kind of how some of these bands in the in the desert rock scene, that's how they started. You know, they would just take their gear out into the desert, you know, tell some people about it, people would show up, um, and they would just do these jam sessions that would just go, you know, into the night. You know, they would basically start around around sunset, I mean, it's it's amazing, you know, like to, to it sounds so cool man. to have been to have been there for that. I want to know uh, exactly who it was that had this idea. You know what I mean? Because, well, I mean, I think some people what stems how many bands have stemmed out of out of these sessions, you know? 
uh, Caius, uh, which you know, which essentially leads into Queens of the Stone Age. So like Josh Home uh, and and the, the dudes from Caius, they all remember those those generator parties and going out there and seeing Yawning Man and just you know listening to those guys jam for hours. You know, yeah, that, that sounds so in cool the, in the desert. I mean, it's fucking awesome, fucking awesome. So so anyway, so they had been recording demos from 86 to 87 they recorded about 30 to 40 songs holy um, shit from 86 to 87 yeah so for, you know so they they recorded a bunch 40 of songs, songs. yeah in, in just a small time frame but they never released so, anything and this is during that time they would go out into the desert and do these jam sessions yeah so this is when like yeah. you know a young uh you know Josh Home is out there or you know you know the guys from like uh, you know the guys that go on to form Mondo Generator and and, and you know uh, Fatso Jetson, all those desert rock bands. You know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, you know they were young and and uh, remember hearing these guys. Uh, so it really had a huge influence on that scene, uh, Yawning cool. Man in particular. So what's what's great about them is what I really like about them is you know it's it's pure instrumental. Um, nice. There's 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 no words. Uh, super chill, laid back. I mean, you can totally hear uh, and imagine yourself in the desert w- with the sunset behind you. Um, as this music is playing, you know, it's it's awesome. So anyway, when you think of desert rock, you don't. At least my brain immediately goes to Queens of the Stone Age. And you know, Caius before before them, so you know a little bit heavier. Yawning Man was way more laid back. It almost sounds more surf rock. Well, and Yawning you know? Man was was a few years before these yeah. guys even even formed, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it was just you know they really had a very consistent sound. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like almost like a like almost kind of jazz, punk, uh, surf rock. Cool. Uh, kind of sound. So yeah, let's just listen. This is a um, this is a song called Buffalo Chips. So basically, so so like I said, they had recorded all these songs uh, between '86 and '87. Nothing was released until 2005, and so there's a collection of songs. It was called Rock Formations. Came out in 2005. This is the last track on that album. Uh, again, this song is called Buffalo Chips. So let's hear it. I wish I could have been there, dude. Yeah. Out in the desert listening to this kind of stuff? 
like yeah. a, around a campfire or something yeah, exactly yeah so these so these songs like i said um these songs were actually recorded in 2004 uh released in 2005 um but here's a good description of it um somebody described it as a, a melancholic mix of acoustic space rock with elements of surf music as well as middle eastern guitar style oh that so, sums it up beautifully yeah yeah so yeah like i said man really just, cool just imagine being out there in the desert and, yeah. and these guys are sitting right in front of you playing that kind of stuff. I mean, it's awesome. Oh, man. It's amazing. So do you know if uh, Josh Holm was out there? Like, yeah. Like, was he friends with these guys? Yeah, he was. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I think they all collaborated together. You know what I mean? So, yeah, there, there's actually a there's actually a quote from the um, the drummer of, of Caius. His name is Brant Bjork. Um, yeah, he, he, I'm not going to give the exact quote, but he says that they were the... Uh, the quote-unquote sickest desert band of all time. Uh, you'd just be up there in the desert, everybody be hanging, partying, and then they'd show up in their van and uh, drag their shit out, set up right about the time the sun was going down, uh, set up the generators, and and just, uh, he, he goes on to say, everyone would just be tripping, and they're just playing <laughs> away for hours. The greatest band I've ever seen, is what he says. Probably awesome. because, you know... <laughs> they're probably the greatest band he's ever seen because they had all this stuff going on. You know, it's one thing to hear that being played in a venue, but when you hear it in the desert, yeah, when you're, and you're just out there, like, especially if you're tripping balls on, on yes, your drug dude. of choice. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, well, that's cool, man. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah. this, this record is, it, it all sounds like that. Like it's a, it's a great listen through all the way, all the way from start to finish. Uh, definitely a no filler album. Uh, yeah, I'll definitely check it out. It's great, dude. Just put it on whenever you're you just want to jam to something because it's 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 awesome. So yeah, cool, check cool. it out. It's called Rock Formations by a band called Yawning Man. Awesome. So our episode for this week is on Foo Fighters' 1999 release. There is nothing left to lose. And um, Trav, do you want to? reveal who our guest is yes we thought it would be fitting to have our older brother spencer join us on this pod as our first guest he's largely responsible for for shaping our interest in in rock music from the 90s because you know that's what he was listening to yes we were too we were way too young to appreciate music in the early 90s um but spencer was old enough to be purchasing CDs and, you know, we would go into his room and he'd be listening to bands like Rage Against the Machine or Foo Fighters or Presidents of the United States of America, yeah, bands man. like that. We would have never listened to those bands if it wasn't for him. Yeah, it's hard to say. That, you know, it's, it's it's hard to say if we would have, but I would I would, I would guess that we probably, probably wouldn't have, you know? Maybe later in life we would have stumbled upon it, but like yeah. those early, that like getting those roots in there early, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he also introduced me to Metallica. So I remember... Um, really? Yeah. He, you know, he, he showed me that, that, that guitar solo in one, and, you know, he, he probably had to go grab the mop because my brain was melted all over the floor. So, uh, yeah, so that was my exposure to, to, to Metallica. So, you know, awesome. Setting me down the, the path toward, um, my appreciation for, for metal, you know? So there you go. Yeah. And Hey, you know what? If you want to hear Travis gush about metal even more, 
why don't you check out our first episode on Allison Chains? Good call, brother. But yeah, I will be gushing about metal um, in future episodes as well. So yeah, so uh, the audio that we were able to salvage um, is we're just gonna have it fade in. Uh, it's it just we just start we we dive right into the album. Yeah. So we're just gonna it's gonna be like you're stepping in uh, to a conversation that's that already started because I yeah mean, that's it's about twenty to thirty minutes in. Yeah, that's exactly what what's happening so yeah all right so here's our conversation with our older brother spencer about foo fighters 1999 release there is nothing left to lose Let's uh, transition into um, our pick for the week. Foo Fighters 99 release, There's Nothing Left to Lose. So I wanted to ask Spencer um, real quick. Do you remember like your first encounter with this record or with a single from it or anything like that? Yeah, I think obviously the first single was probably Learn to Fly, which was... I would bet their biggest hit to date in terms of kind of going mainstream with that song. So, um, you know, even outside of just rock radio, I think that crossed over into the top 40 uh, as far as radio play goes. Oh, yeah. It it, it peaked at number one on a, quite a few charts in, the, in 1999. We've got, Key, we've got that, a funny story we could share about Learn to Fly. So we do. Dad took us to to a Foo Fighters show back in the day. Me and Q. I think I know this story. And and and, and Cave In opened for them, which was cool. Number one. But Dad sat in the back with all the other dads, right? With his earplugs in or whatever. But he took out the earplugs when they started playing Learn to Fly. Because that's his favorite Foo Fighters song as well. So, yeah, like you said, it crossed over. Yeah, he doesn't like... He doesn't like when Dave screams, but he really liked to learn to fly. Yeah, it had a wide, wide appeal, like you said. Yeah, so this album for me is pretty special. Um, I remember specifically this being the first CD that I bought with my own money. And I remember going to, you guys remember Blockbuster Music, right? Yes. Yeah, I remember going, I don't know if I already had this album in mind, like when I went to Blockbuster Music. Uh, to buy but I went remember they used to have uh, along the back wall they would have all these listening stations yep. with the headphones all the newer tracks or new, newer albums that were out yeah all the newer releases yep, yep. and yep. this was one of the albums back there and I was already a Foo Fighters fan thanks to you Spence and I went back there you know just started listening to a few of the tracks and purchased it with my allowance money that was the first CD that I bought with my own money 
This for me is one of a few albums that I can play start to finish without ever even wanting to skip a track. So are you saying that there's no filler? Yeah, you would consider this a no filler album. No, there there's no filler for sure. Yeah, I would say so. You know, even the albums that I like quite a bit, in most cases there's at least one track that I would say I'm going to skip most of the time. And especially if you go back to that era of music, a lot of music at that time, they were writing four or five hits for the radio, and the rest was legitimately filler. Yeah. Especially if you get outside of rock music. Right. You know, the pop radio hits, there are a handful of songs written by big-time writers for those pop musicians. And the rest is just stuff they put in there to complete 10 or 12 tracks for an album. So there's a lot of garbage. Right, to please to please the record labels or whatever. Yeah. Correct, yeah. You know, rock musicians don't necessarily take that same approach. But I think it still applies in a lot of cases, even more so with new music. But in that era of 90s rock, if you venture too far outside of the singles, you're probably going to be disappointed in a lot of cases. Yeah, and there's a lot of reasons, and we'll get we'll get into it. There's a lot of reasons why this album was really special for for them too. Um, let's. I kind of want to paint a picture of what Dave was going through at the time leading up to this recording, and maybe like the the few years, uh, the early years of Foo Fighters too. You know, he had just moved back to his hometown, Virginia, after living in L.A for a year or so where I believe they recorded the color and the shape in LA. They did. Yes. Uh, which is the album that came out before it. Right. And he grew to hate that city with a passion. In the one year that he lived there, he couldn't stand the bullshit coming out of Hollywood. You know, the all that rock star bullshit that goes along with that lifestyle. It comes through in a lot of the lyrics too here. Oh yeah, I was yeah. So I was gonna say so that our intro track um, we started the podcast off with is track one called "Stacked Actors," which is Dave's response to living in Hollywood and how he just grew to hate everything about it. He referred to it as being plastic and phony. Uh, he just hated it, so he he had to he had to get away from it, and he actually. Bought a home in Virginia, kind of near his his the neighborhood that he grew up in, and built a built a home studio down in his basement. And they just recorded this album on their own uh, with the help of of producer Adam Casper. And they they didn't even have they weren't even signed to a record label at the time. Um, yeah, and they were just a three piece at the time too, which I thought was cool. They weren't signed to a record label. No, they they signed to RCA after they finished the recording. In between recordings, in between Color and the Shape and and there is nothing left to lose, they weren't signed. Yeah, no, they dropped they dropped their record yeah, label. I, okay, I think they were put off by the recording process with a major producer. That yeah, they went through on Color yeah. and Shape. Well, I know that that's that you know they talk about how or Dave talks about how the vibe on There's Nothing Left to Lose was a lot more relaxed and like he recorded all the vocals on a couch. You know, I mean, because it was in his own studio. So they, he said that you can really hear it 
on that album how relaxed it is and whatnot because they didn't have the control of the record label. So yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, and that was their first time working with Adam Casper too. Um, and the way David put it, basically working with Adam, what you're hearing in the room is what you hear through the speakers from what's recorded. So he kind of just lets lets you do your own thing uh, when he's in the studio with you. Um, you know, he'll just kind of speak up if you think something sounds terrible, but otherwise it's kind of just lets you do, do your own thing. So it's a real, it's a much more organic sounding album, um, than their more polished color in the shape. Uh, so I've actually got a, a little, a clip from an interview that, that, uh, that Dave and all them, uh, did on this music channel in Canada called much music. I think it's just Canada's MTV basically. But this was in 99, and he was asked uh, how the how the record sounded and kind of what they were going for. Um, and, yeah, I'll just go ahead and play this clip. Uh, can you tell us a bit a bit about how it's, how it's going to sound? The album? What, yeah, what the, what the, what the uh, fans could be looking forward to oh, on the new album. It's well, the album probably sounds more like a band mm. than most things that you hear on the radio only because we didn't use any sort of um, pro tools or computer program to edit or clean anything up. We recorded it in my basement and uh, and it just sounds real. Like it just has their flaws or things here and there that, you know, kind of screw up a little bit and um, and the songs are the best songs we've ever written. So it's pretty cool. So yeah, everything was, you know, analog. Um, no Pro Tools or editing software programs. Uh, they, I know they use, you know, they just any microphone that he that he could find, whether it was used or not. He he, that's the kind of stuff that he had down in his his basement studio. Pretty sweet too, because this album was really successful. Like they they took a Grammy home. I think they won three Grammys. They, they won three Grammys for this. Really? Yeah. Yeah, this was their first Grammy win, which was for Best Rock Album, I believe. So let's say, too, that with this album, Dave was uh, starting to get more comfortable with his with his voice and, and uh, a little more confident with his songwriting. And this, al- this album is also has a lot more soft, more pretty tracks, really. Uh, I've got Dave quoted from an interview... I don't know if this is a, a magazine or what. It's called Melody Maker. It's an interview back in 99. Uh, and he's quoted as saying, I always felt like with the last album, as in The Color and the Shape, that we seemed like a hardcore band trying to make melodic songs or a punk band that wanted to sing something beautiful. But with this album, it's happened as in like we're, you know, we're finding our sound. And we feel uh, much more comfortable making beautiful music. So I think with Aurora, I think that shines through a lot. Aurora's to this day my f- my favorite Foo Fighters song. I might I may have to agree with you. I think it's pretty high up there for me. It's just so everything about it's just perfect. I think. Um, let's go ahead and play it, and we'll t- we'll talk about it after that.
lovely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that song, you know, kind of builds towards the end, too. Which, yeah, it does. Um, is... I like... So I only have that one clip, because, um, yeah. you know, we don't want this episode to be two hours long. But yeah, so it follows at the, the end... the same general it, formula. It, it just continues to build, and it, like one of the reasons I yeah, like it. Yeah, there's like a... Kind of like a crescendo towards the end, and yes, um, yeah, lot going, a lot going on towards the end. Um, that song I didn't realize until this past year. A good friend of mine that lives up here told me that um, Aurora. He's referring to Aurora Avenue, which is a street up here in Seattle um, that he lives. I did read that somewhere. Yeah, so this is this song is a nostalgic look uh, back at his his time in Seattle and, and the life that he once had. Um, he says that um, that song actually questions the meaning of life. It is probably the heaviest thing I've ever written. Um, really pretty song. I love it. So you guys both said that it was one of your favorite, or is your favorite track, right? To this day, Foo Fighters track? Yep. So yeah, um, uh, Rolling Stones had a reader's poll back in 2013. Uh, to determine like the top ten Foo Fighters songs, just by their, their their readers, you know, and Aurora was number eight. So uh, you know it's a fan favorite, obviously. And then I've got a quote from the drummer Taylor Hawkins. He talks specifically about this track. Um, he says that that he um, that this song is like more. You, you hear him more as a drummer than the rest of the tracks because you know he said that he felt like he sort of handed over the more faster and crazier songs to Dave as far as like hey what's the drum beat going to be you know mm-hmm. uh, but for the ones that, that like Aurora that were more as he says jazzier and freakier ones he said he, he kind of his yeah his handprints are more on on those tracks so, so you know you're hearing Taylor Hawkins as, as a drummer more on this track than cool. some of the other ones yeah Foo Fighters went through a ton of band members for in their early years. And yeah, Taylor Hawkins was the first drummer that was actually able to fill Dave's shoes, you know? Like, in The Color and the Shape, they ended up going back. And I know you guys heard this too. Dave went back and secretly re-recorded every single drum track that William Goldsmith, who was in the band at the time, also a member of Sunny Day Real Estate, along with Nate, the bass player for Foo Fighters. Dave went back and secretly re-recorded every single drum track on The Color and the Shape himself and didn't even tell William about it until after the fact. Well, yeah, I think that was the shitty thing about it was like... That is brutal. It was a, it, you know, it was a secret only to William. Like, everybody else knew. Right. You know what I mean? Right. William was back in Seattle where he lives and the rest of the band members were all down there and they were like, hey, uh... We're like re-recording a bunch of stuff. You should come back down down here. And William calls Dave. He's like, "Hey, should I like be in LA with you guys right now?" And Dave just basically goes, "Do not come down here. I'll explain later." Yeah, that's a shit move, man. Yeah, and he's he he um, feels guilt about that. And Dave does. It sounds like. Oh yeah. Yeah, you because know, he just you know. Yeah. But I mean, you, you know, if you're Dave Grohl, one of the best rock drummers of all time. Obviously, you can see how like he wants the drums to sound a certain way, and so yeah, like you're, to your point, like you know, I, I, he probably I'm sure there's there's times when Taylor lays down a drum track and and Dave 
probably could have done it better. But, you know, I'm sure he learned lessons from how he treated William, you know. But, yeah. Yeah. Taylor was drumming for Atlantis Morissette. Yeah, he was her touring drummer at the time, yeah. Yeah, so he's a pro. And, you know, he's been the drummer ever since, so, yeah. He's amazing, yeah. He's he's an incredible drummer. So, our next, moving down the line here, our next pick is going to be Headwires, which... I don't know about you guys, but this is this might be my second favorite track that isn't a single off this album. I love it. Travis, you weren't you were you were a little hesitant on this one. Why is that? Well, I just thought it I think the opening is very similar to Aurora. It's got a similar vibe, so I just wanted to kind of mix it up a little bit. But the rest of the track sounds you know, it gets it gets heavier for sure. So it's fine. Yeah, I don't necessarily share that same affinity with you either for headwires really i like it i like it i think it's a great track like i said i i pretty much like every track yeah yeah i don't necessarily gravitate towards this one any more than some of the other tracks well let's name off the singles real quick um track one stacked actors apparently was a single in australia uh it was a limited release single but it's technically a single track two and track three so break out and learn to fly Track five, Generator, uh, which also was a limited release single in Australia and Europe. And then track eight, Next Year, which is probably their most pretty track. Um, so, but yeah, Headwires, that's track nine on the album. And we've actually got a couple clips. So the first one is uh, just the beginning of the song and it kind of fades out after the, the first chorus, I believe. So I like that song because it's another example of kind of the more pretty tracks that show up on this one, you know? Well, and like you can definitely hear kind of what Taylor Hawkins was talking about earlier with like the jazzier type drums, like that intro mm-hmm. drum track where like he doubles up on the hi-hat, you know? Yeah. Like I really like that that drum track. Yeah, me too. Like that's cool. But yeah, it like I said, to me, it's got kind of a similar vibe to, to Aurora as far as like the more quiet... But but like I said, it 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 changes tempo and, and 
in the volume, you know, for the chorus, which, you know, I really like that chorus. I think it's a, I think it's a great song. Like, don't get me wrong. Yeah. And actually, so my favorite part of Headwires, um, I've got in clip two, it's towards the end of the song. Um, I'll just play it and then I'll kind of talk about, talk about why I like it so much. that tiny little line at the end the sun is on our landria i just love that the way he sings it and it kind of just uh quiets back down after the bridge so what is what what is our landria q yeah i was yeah i was actually just looking it up because uh, i was curious about it uh our landria is a little town in northern virginia um so Dave Grohl is just kind of reminiscing. The Foo Fighters have another song called Arlandria. Yep, I just I just saw that too. Um, which is on, maybe on Wasting Light. So he's got a lot of affection for Arlandria. Yeah, in uh, Wasting Light, that track Arlandria, uh, the lyrics on that song, he says, My sweet Virginia, I'm the same as I was in your world. Yeah, so that's cool. Anyways, I love that song. It's just another good, and Trav, you're probably right. That one's that one's probably another one where where Taylor gets to shine through a little bit. Yeah, um, at least on the the verses, delicate hi hat accents and all that. Right. I feel like the tracks that we have landed on are definitely a little bit more of the softer tracks on the on this album. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that we have gravitated towards that. Those are great. They're all great tracks. Yeah. And, you know, the Foo Fighters, I think, maybe more so than any rock band that I can think of, have really integrated more softer, melodic music into their albums. As you know, they did the double album, two albums after this one, that was, you know, disc one is hard rocking songs, disc two is basically acoustic. Yeah, in your honor. And they did that, you know, in a tour where they toured arenas with rock songs and basically theaters with acoustic and, you know, larger, almost orchestra type bands. And they continue to do that a little bit in each album. They will mix in softer songs. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And this, this I believe, is kind of the them first taking the steps towards that direction yeah with some of the tracks in this album i mean i feel like it's just dave maturing as an artist you know right and like stepping you're stepping out of you're stepping out of the grunge era in the in 99 anyway yeah you know and he was 
it's like he like he was saying early on um he didn't want all that rock star bullshit like he said you know and he had such a negative experience living in living so close to hollywood and all that and yeah finding that good headspace back in his hometown um you know and he was also finally getting away from from being tied to nirvana too you know because he got a lot of shit for that early on when he started foo fighters um but yeah you're right maturing as an artist realizing that that it doesn't have to be all super grungy and heavy maturing as a songwriter uh so our last pick is mia i got a couple clips on that one too all right let's let's start let's play this first clip I like in the like the very beginning of the the song. It almost sounds like it's coming through like a like a really cheap small amplifier, you know, like one of those old like smoky yeah, I like that too. amps or something like that. And then it kind of comes in like full full sound and whatnot. You think he's talking about L.A. again? He's talking about the uh, the mannequins, mannequins. Drunk, drunk in Hollow Town, probably. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was wondering what we thought overall about what the lyrics to this might mean. I mean, so I thought that it was, I thought the lyrics were getting lost in you is better than being found. But I was wrong. Apparently it's getting lost in you again is better than being numb. So, yeah, I mean, I've been singing it wrong my whole life here. <laughs> I thought, it, I mean, that's to me, I'm going to have to, uh, he needs to rewrite the lyrics. Cause... <laughs> For you. I mean, when you think being numb, you think drugged up. You know, like, or drinking a lot, just kind of numbing the pain or distancing yourself from reality through drugs. Yeah, you won't find me. I'm going MIA. Yeah, who knows, man. But I was thinking about a relationship as well, right? That's what I was thinking, yeah. Oh, you know, so another reason I'd, I'd read that. So Dave moved to L.A. from Seattle to distance himself from a recent divorce. Um and not because he didn't, you know, they were still both very in love, but they knew that it just wouldn't work. So I, he, I guess I didn't know he was married early on. 
I didn't know that either. Yeah, but he he had to move away from that town because everything in Seattle reminded him of of this girl that he loved. And I'm sure one of the things that he did to help cope with the pain, he's probably just, you know, got numb off drugs and drinking or whatever. That makes sense to where, you know, another reason I mean, yeah, LA sucked for him, but it it was just him trying to get away from from all those those emotions and I'm sure he was drinking a lot in LA. It sounded like he was he was not in a good way. So again, moving moving from LA to Virginia probably really helped him clear his head, you know, get a fresh start. Let's play the second clip from MIA. that little breakdown where it gets even more soft and quiet and those lyrics there he says um red red laced around your head sounds seems like he's admiring someone maybe it's like a a bow or something and and this girl's you know wrapped up in her hair or something or maybe it's more metaphorical well dave if you're listening give us a call we'd love to chat with you about it you're gonna have to cut that joke (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> whatever that was great <laughs> you can't leave that joke screw you guys screw you guys <laughs> oh boy <laughs> well that's it friends that's our three no filler picks for there is nothing left to lose I feel like we just barely scratched the surface as we usually say because you know every every song on this album is, is worth exploring maybe we'll have to do a part two someday talk about pick pick another three tracks from this album well what other songs would you guys pick that weren't singles live in skin was one that we were kind of that's good yeah live in skin um gimme stitches yeah i like gimme stitches a lot if i may say so i think i think generator is my favorite track on the album and that was a single obviously so we're not going to talk about yeah. it here but it was a single only in australia though so but hey we might have some listeners in australia we don't we definitely don't but maybe someday. Not yet, but you could. Never. So there you have it. We don't want Australian listeners. <laughs> so for context, this album is almost 20 years old. Just to put that out there. Yeah, that's... And wow. Foo Fighters will become Rock and Roll Hall of Fame eligible in two years. So, okay, so... So how does, how does that work? Is Dave, is Dave Davis in for Nirvana? Is he in just as his own artist yet? No, I don't know. I think you have to have a solo single. Okay. 
to be eligible as you know just for yourself well i mean he deserves a spot obviously for just himself as a musician you know because his contributions to rock you know it's just like there's nobody else that really compares to him so what else what are the other what's the other criteria you said a couple of years spence it's because you have to be. It's it's twenty five years from the release of the first single, from the band makes them eligible. Okay. So ninety four was the first single off of that album, I believe, or early ninety five, off of the self titled. Well, let me ask you this, Spence, because I feel like so for me, I kind of stopped listening to Foo Fighters probably after one by one. I mean, I yeah, I listened to In Your Honor. Um, but after that, I kind of just stopped. Spence, you've kind of stuck around as a fan a little bit longer. I feel like here and there, I can't say that I, I can't say that I listen to them still. Any of the new stuff, okay? I appreciate it for what it is. Yeah, I think I will always enjoy to a certain extent Foo Fighters music, at least on some level. Yeah, but it's not something that I. I'm really listening too much. I, I do have to say, though, there are two tracks on the second album of the, In Your Honor, uh-huh. two of the acoustic tracks that are probably my top ten of all the Foo Fighters songs. Which ones? Because uh, I remember those. Over and Out and On the Mend. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember, I remember really liking On the Mend. Two great, um, great songs. Yeah. And there's songs here and there that I listen to sometimes on some of the newer stuff. I'd say Wasting Light overall was a pretty good album. Um, I can't say that so much for Sonic Highways. That was kind of a gimmick album with them recording a different song, kind of in a different style in different cities across the country. And that, that ended up a product of the documentary that they released it, on. it was yeah they documented it for hbo and you know traveled the country going to different cities and recorded the songs in recording studios in different cities and tried to yeah. incorporate it's a cool documentary it was very cool they tried to incorporate some of the style of the music in each city into the songs yeah which is a cool idea and and i mean it it was, I'd say it was successful in terms of the songs were, were pretty decent, but it was kind of a departure from their normal style, so it, it's not necessarily what they always sound like. Spencer, would you consider There's Nothing Left to Lose your favorite Foo Fighters album as well? I would say so, yeah. Just for sheer playability, being able to play start to finish, and I can listen to this album anytime. Yeah. Most of the other albums, there are tracks that stand out to me, but not necessarily more than a handful. Right, you know, I agree. Three or four tracks from each album, I think I dig, but not like this album. Even on The Color and the Shape. Color and the Shape, of course, has some actually has some really good songs, more than a couple. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just love the fact, too, that, that, that they did this on their own and that, that, that he built, you know, it's recorded in his, in his basement at home. Uh, I think that makes it even more special. Travis, how about you, man? You were never really a Foo Fighters fan, were you? Uh, I mean, that's not true. I, w- I wouldn't say I'm not a Foo Fighters fan at all. I mean, I'm a huge Dave Grohl fan, you know what I mean? I would say that 
this the first album, the self-titled album, is probably my favorite Foo Fighters album, and that's all Dave Grohl. So there might be something to that there. But yeah, I, I really like the I really like the self-titled album because it's still got a little bit of that. It's got a lot of the grunge vibe still because he's fresh off Nirvana. You know what I mean? There's some great stuff on there. Yeah. I like For All the Cows. I think Good Grief is my favorite song on there. But, uh, yeah, there's just, there's really good stuff on, on that self-titled album. And it's just really, it always just impresses the hell out of me that everything you're hearing on that album is Dave Grohl. You know what I mean? Every instrument. So, so yeah, I think that's still my favorite. Yeah, I think for all three of us, it's hard to really put into words how much overall Dave Grohl has contributed to the music we listen to. Yeah, that's very true. If you consider Nirvana, I mean, we can all agree that some of that, some of the Queens of the Stone Age stuff that Dave was a part of is a big part of some of the music that we love. Yeah, and and we're going to do a Queens of the Stone Age review at some point. Very soon, probably. We're going to do Songs for the Dead at some point. But yeah, I feel like Queens of the Stone Age was like my gateway into heavier stuff aside like Metallica was my first metal band but like Queens of Stone Age was my gateway into like stoner rock stoner metal this different side of metal that I had never the more uh, heard heavy before. Yeah. heavy screaming yeah. and, and and Dave's drumming is uh, unreal on that album it's some of the best drumming I've ever heard you know yeah I I, I kind of wig out a little bit every time I listen to him drum on No One Knows yeah I can I can have a little mini freak out listen to that song every single time I hear it. <laughs> the drumming on that track is insane. You know what blew my mind, guys? I didn't know this. Um, I don't have sources to back this up. But I, I heard recently that Dave Grohl doesn't use a double bass pedal. It's all one foot. And if you think about some of the songs where he's drumming on, on songs for the deaf, insane insane that he's doing all that with one fucking foot and one fucking bass drum I'm not musical enough in a technical sense to know what necessarily that means well if you think about it if you have a double bass pedal you use both your left and right foot it's more sound obviously okay so Lars Ulrich uses a double bass Spence Lars Ulrich has always used a double bass is Lars considered a good drummer no I didn't think so. I, I've never liked Lars. I've heard... But I just don't like him as a human being. A lot of people talk about him as not being a very good drummer. Right, but I'm just saying, like, if, you want, if you're trying to... If you're trying to yeah. For context? Yeah. I yeah, think, yeah, think about the kind of stuff you hear Do, him playing with Metallica. Would you say most rock drummers use double bass? No. No? No. I don't it's, think so. It's, it's, it's like a... It depends on the kind of rock, yeah, though. Yeah, no. It's like arena rock, yeah, maybe. Like, you know... Neil Pert. Well, guys, the like the the metal that you guys listen to, the majority of those drummers are probably using a double bass, either a double bass, you know, a double bass pedal, metal? where they can. Uh, yeah, I don't know uh, if that's necessarily use both. I don't know oh, if yeah. that's necessarily true. Q. Okay, yeah, I, I yeah, <laughs> I don't listen to metal. But anyways, yeah, Dave Grohl's just a fucking beast, and that fucking blows my mind. Yeah, yeah, he's one of the best. He's he's one of the best rock drummers to ever live, no doubt. I agree. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. There's no almost no contest. Man. Yeah. If you think about most drumming in most rock songs, 
it just blends into the background. It's They're just, pretty straightforward. Just providing right? a beat for the song. It's not stand out in any way. It doesn't contribute to it other than keeping the beat. Yep, yep. And so when you hear a drummer that sets the pace kind of like Dave does and really drives the song, it's, for me, it sets that song apart from anything else. Yeah. More so than a than a solo from a guitar or anything else, or even a bass line on a, a bass. If the drumming can set the tone for the song, it it completely changes the song and it makes me pay attention. Now, Spencer, I you know I I really appreciate that as a drummer. Uh, I didn't say that you did that in any of your stuff. Hey now. <laughs> I can't say that I remember anything you doing standing out necessarily. Although I haven't I haven't listen, really heard now, you play drums in probably 20 years. 20 Not yeah. that long. Well, <laughs> you know what? Years. I stuck with it and I'm I'm pretty dece, okay? I'm pretty dece. <laughs> Uh, fine. <laughs> but I appreciate your respect for, for the drummer, dude. You appreciate cause... my appreciation of drumming? Yep. Okay. I do. Good. Because uh, we're, the, we're the backbone of every band. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, hey, Q, you remember, I mean, we'll probably, we'll probably cut this out, but why not talk about it? You remember the, you remember the flicker stick drummer? Yeah, he, he sucked. sucked ass. Yeah, and you could tell he sucked. You could tell he sucked. Yeah. Like, he, like you know, like, when, when the drummer's bad, like, you can tell. He, a drummer can make or break a track. And that's the thing, like, you don't have to be a complex drummer to be a good drummer. You just got to be creative. Right. You got to be creative. Well, I, right, like uh, like Ringo Starr wasn't complex. Ringo Starr, uh, Jim Eno. A spoon, yeah. Drummer for yeah. Spoon. He is as simple as, it, as, as, as they come, and he is by far one of my drummer, my favorite drummers. One of your, from, one of your frummers? One of, one of, yeah. Uh, that's a little bit bit of a tangent, friends. But uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, Spence, thanks for thanks for tagging along, being our our guinea pig for for our first guest on the podcast. Anytime, appreciate it. Keeping it in the family. You can share it with all your friends and and you know get some of that some of that internet fame, some of that internet fame. You can impress all your coworkers. Yeah. Uh. All right. So, uh, with every episode, we have a Closing track that we somehow tied to the band that we just talked about. So, Q, if I'm not mistaken, today the outro track is from none other than Queens of the Stone Age. Uh, however, it is not a track. It is not a track that has Dave on the drums. So don't get excited. Before we jump into that, let's just remind all of our dear listeners where they can uh, get more information about us and and the episodes. Uh, if you jump onto our website, nofillerpodcast.com, uh, you'll see each of our episodes on the homepage, and you can click on uh, read the show notes, uh, which will ex- expand, um, give you some notes. Uh, we'll link to sources, any uh, videos that that we uh, reference or you know clips and videos. We'll we'll link those up as well, uh, just to give you a little like a more well-rounded. Uh, look at the album that we talked about uh, you can also stream our episodes uh, on iTunes or any other podcast streaming app uh, you can also check us out on SoundCloud soundcloud.com slash podcast. you can stream our episodes on there as well and we have our first Spotify playlist uh, live 
that has the the songs that we discussed or referenced on the episodes uh, that came out in January. Uh, those songs are all collected together on a playlist. So if there is a song that you hear a snippet from and you you want to go back and hear the whole song or just explore the album more, uh, that's a good place to go because uh, basically any track that we mention or reference, we throw on a Spotify playlist that we will release once a month. So the No Filler January playlist is live on Spotify. You just have to find our profile. Uh, so if you search No Filler Podcast on Spotify, you'll see our profile. You can follow us and listen to the playlists uh, that way. I'm leaving those sneezes in. Just kidding. <laughs> Why don't you take them and remix them for the <laughs> intro? <laughs> uh, all right, cool. So our outro song uh, to close this episode out, uh, Dave Grohl did a little Q&A for uh, magazine NME, which its abbreviation escapes me at the moment, but no one cares. came out in 1999. It was called Songs in the Key of Life. They were just asking him a bunch of questions about like artists that influenced him or you know albums that he remembers listening to as a kid, shit like that. And they asked him, all right, New Year's Eve, 1999. What's on the hi-fi? Because people that are around our age and older remember everyone freaked the shit out for 1999 thinking that there was going to be some kind of weird apocalyptic thing when it rolled over to, to zero and all of our computers would crash and shit. Everyone cared about it. Like, like it was going to be like the biggest party you'd ever throw. Cause it could be the last one that anyone ever attended. And Dave was saying, well, I'm definitely not going to play that fucking Prince song, <laughs> but, <laughs> but Queens of the stone age would be a good way to start the new year. He's saying it's one of the best CDs to come out in the last five years. He's talking about their self-titled album uh, that came out in September of 1998. So it had just been a year or so uh, since since that album came out. Uh, but like you were saying, this isn't the album where Dave Grohl is drumming on it for them. But they had been around for a few years before that. And um, he says that we all love this CD so much that every time it winds up in the CD player... It's a cause for celebration. I love that band. And then he goes on to drum for them a few years later. Isn't that a doozy? <laughs> so the song I picked is Mexicola. Um, and I've kind of got the clip fade in. Uh, and then it'll just kind of play out to the end of the song. So that's a wrap, friendlies. Thanks for tuning in. Spence, thanks for joining us. Yes, sir. It was a lot of fun. We should do it again sometime, bro. Next time we'll get the we'll get the recording process figured out. Oh, and hey, we didn't we haven't picked a sidetrack yet, have we? Guess we'll just keep them guessing. That's correct. Cool. All right. Thanks again for tuning in. My name is Quentin. My name is Travis. And I'm Spencer. There he goes. Thanks, bro. Tell him, Steve Dave. <laughs> Don't you dare bring that shit on my <laughs> you podcast. Keep that in. That's a shout out to all the army ants out there. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You little terrorists. <laughs>
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.